0: Hi, my name is Shandell Short and welcome to my podcast where I will share all of the things that I am obsessed with. Self-love, healing, health, humor, and helping others navigate through the messy and magical chapters of this thing called life. I'm a small town girl who's always had a curious mind and committed to breaking glass ceilings. I took a rock bottom moment to uncover everything I could learn about the invisible threads that hold us back in life. On this podcast, I will share my perspectives. I will engage in thought provoking conversations with some of my favorite people, maybe inspire you to ask yourself questions, heal something from your past, connect you with like-minded people, or take that big leap that you've been wanting to take. There'll be lots of real talk. Think of it as sitting down with your big sister. No topics are off the table, so be prepared to be challenged, encouraged while you learn. Michelle. Welcome.
1: Hi, Chanel. Thank you for having me. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you?
0: I'm good. All right. So for anyone tuning in today, I have Michelle Burley with me. Uh, Michelle is a cancer survivor, patient advocate, consultant with live experience, a speaker, an author, a mom, a wife, and doer of hard things.
2: Yes, that's right.
0: You have a power statement on your Instagram that I absolutely love. You say, vulnerability is my superpower.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to speak with you and to share this with others. I We met on TikTok, actually, and we've also chatted one other time um, via Zoom on, on chat before and kept in touch and we both follow each other, but I find you extremely inspiring. Um, you wrote a book called The Road to Courageous Living. Uh, I think you have it with you cause I have mine given away someone someone else to read. Uh, the Road to Courageous Living. And it says learning audacious self-love and the skills to harness personal success. You got it. Wow. I read the book like in a night, it was amazing. I, yeah, I was just so inspired that I wanted to have you on and share your story with others. So can you share a little bit about your journey with us?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, um, it's funny, when I wrote the book, I I actually didn't intend it as a, you know, cancer survivor story. For me, um, the cancer diagnosis was really just the, um, it was the conduit, I think, to, getting to a place of self-love and self-worth and and uh, really sinking into the most authentic version of who I am. And, and you know, the crazy thing is is I had been trying to do that for years. Um, and really going through that experience is, is what got me over. I think um, what was some fear and, and self self-doubt and some lessons that maybe I didn't learn very early in life uh, that I then had the opportunity to learn through that experience. So that, that's what it was for me. I had kind of been fumbling through life and, and trying to, um, improve and trying to get to this place of self-love and just had really been struggling with it until the day I got sick. And then it was like, okay, you know, life is too short to, uh, to be, worried about what other people think, or to be second guessing yourself all the time, or to be doing things that you don't really want to be doing. So it was, it was sort of the kick in the pants that I needed to start living the way I actually had always wanted to live.
0: Good. Well, congratulations for beating cancer's ass first and foremost. (laughs) Um, You you mentioned that you were trying before your diagnosis. Can you share a little bit, like what did, what did that look like for you back before.
1: Yeah, you know I think um, it, it's a little different because hindsight is 2020 right But at the time um, I, I think what I was doing was trying to I didn't really have my own guardrails.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's really what it was for me is I didn't really have my own guardrails. I came from a, a pretty humble family. you know. Um, my parents were very young when they had my brother and I, and, and so we did a lot of growing up with them, I think. And so um, when I was growing up and, and making the decisions about how I wanted to live my life, um, what I was doing was looking out to others to determine what it was that I should have been striving for. And the reality is that everybody's journey is their own. And if you're not meeting up to the standards that you're striving for, then you just always feel like you're failing. Right. And, and that was really what was happening to me. And and rather than recognizing that that was the case and, and, you know, everybody's starting point is different and everybody's journeys are different. I was just beating myself up for never being or doing enough.
2: Mm
0: Wow. Wow. Yes, that is very true. I think for a lot of people and, um, using my platform to talk about self-love has been very eye-opening to how many people say, like, I'm trying, you know, I'm trying,
2: mm-hmm. but
0: this is where I think why I wanted you to kind of unpack that is like, well, what what are you doing to try, right? It's like, I'm I'm going to do what they tell me to do. I'm going to do this. Like I always joke. And I say like, I would have crystals in my bra and I would have the best self-help book and I would have all these things, but it was always externally looking for. Yes the answer to self-love and it's like nowhere else, but inside you. Right. And it's. um...
1: sure. And, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the book too, is that even, even the, um, even the drive to succeed for me was not internally motivated. Right. For me, the drive was I'm going to show people what I can do and I'm going to show people who I, so it was almost for me, um, while it was motivating, it was kind of a very negative motivator for me, um, which didn't help either.
0: No, no, it, it doesn't. Because I think that, yeah, and I, I talked about this on last week's podcast, I think it was about your Why? you know, and if your why is not clear and it's, it's, it comes from a negative or a toxic place or a past trauma or something like that, it ends up burning out. Like you you burn out, it burns out. Like, and all of a sudden you get to this point where you're like, I don't know what the hell to do anymore. You know, it, it's just not motivating. And it could be like with health, like before we'd work out to like be skinny, but it's like, well, that's not really always going to be motivating, you know? So, or a positive driver. So, Right. I, I love that. Um, I, I hate to hear that you had to have this, you know, big moment to, um, you know, shake that awake for you, I guess, and for you to yeah. find that. But can you tell us a little bit about um, your cancer diagnosis? Because I know that you're a client advocate. And that's super important that we share that message today, um, in case anyone is also needing to advocate for their own health
1: yeah, well, you know, maybe I'll start by mentioning that I have been a professional in the financial industry for over twenty years now. And uh, you know i've I've been I was always happy with my career and and, you know, I felt like I was doing good work and and all that. Um, and then, when I was leading up to my diagnosis, um, I had started feeling well uh, unwell a number of weeks before that, and I had, you know, gone in and t- and talked to my family doctor a couple of times and was sort of rushed off. And I had gone to the hospital a time or two. And I was also kind of brushed off and just given medication and here, you know, go feel better kind of deal, but wasn't really getting to the root of, of the problem. And by the time I was diagnosed, uh, my condition had deterior- deteriorated to the point where I had about 24 hours left to live. Wow. Yeah. So that was, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine, incredibly shocking and and just devastating, devastating for myself and my family. I mean, my children were only five years old at the time. So the idea, you know, of potentially leaving them and, and all that was just it was a really, really hard time. And I felt like I wasn't really getting any help um, from the healthcare professionals that I had spoken to. And on the day that I was, you know, uh, admitted to the hospital, I just, I was sitting there and I was like, you know, pardon my French, but I was like, you know, this is just, bullshit. This is bullshit, <laughs> right? Because you push and push and push and you try so hard and, just feel unheard and feel like you're not getting anywhere. And and in that particular instance, it literally almost ended my life. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't help but think how many other people have been in that situation before and didn't push,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or maybe didn't push as hard as I did, right? And And would have lost that, you know, would have lost their lives. And um for me i just couldn't tolerate the thought of that and and i decided you know i was sitting in the bed that day and i was like you know the the nurse was standing beside me and i said you know i think i'm going to quit my job and write a book and do some public speaking <laughs> she was like she was like you know that sounds like a great idea but maybe let's just get through today first yeah <laughs> Okay, fair point. Yeah, and you know that was where when it really started for me is that I knew I needed to um I knew that if I was going to live through it I needed to use my voice to make a difference wherever I could and if that meant, you know, working with individual patients to give them pointers on how to assert themselves in medical Settings, or whether that be directly with healthcare organizations, to help them understand the patient experience, so that they can develop, you know, um, programs and services, and and even personal behaviors that are actually going to support a positive trajectory. That's what I wanted to do.
0: Good, but well, yeah, I love that. Like, I think that it's so needed right now. But I, you know, it's 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 always devastating to hear that someone goes through that, you know, but I think right now it's so important um, that there are people like you sharing your story and saying, no, like you need to advocate because I'm just going to take a back a minute. I do believe from the book, you were sent home, correct? Like a couple of times, like you had said, just given prescriptions, but you were really ill. Like, I want to like bring that home. Like you were not like, Oh, like I, I, I'm just not feeling well. It was like, you were quite ill correct?
1: I was yeah I was I was very ill so I had been I'd actually been working out at the gym up until about three weeks before um, landing in the hospital and you know it was it was coming close to the end of the year so Christmas was coming up and we were prepping for that and it was like you know kids um, school you know holiday parties and shows and stuff like that it was just a really busy time so you know being in the gym and doing a regular workout i felt more tired and it was harder to do than it had been before but i didn't really think too too much of it just given everything else that was going on at the time um and after that last workout i had gone home and spent a couple hours baking with one of my daughters and it was just really really hard to get through and um the next morning i tried to get out of bed. And it was just, it was just like pain, pain shooting through my lower back and hip. And, uh, by noon that day, I was having a really difficult time walking. Mm -hmm. So, um, I had gone to the hospital and explained what was going on. And I was told that I had a locked muscle and they gave me hydromorphone, um, which is a, you know, a pretty powerful narcotic, uh and a muscle relaxer and sent me home and you know that was great because it made me feel warm and fuzzy and uh, you know I don't know whether it made the pain less or I just didn't really care so much about it with those particular drugs but um, you know I was on them for for a number of days and you know unable to drive and not unable to parent and and all that kind of stuff and I said you know I can't be on this forever and the muscle isn't getting better so I did go to see my family doctor, and um, and she asked a few questions, and um, ultimately she confirmed that it was a locked muscle. And so she gave me a different medication. She took me off of the narcotic and put me on a medication called meloxicam, and that is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. And the problem with that particular type of medication is that it depletes platelets in the blood, and while that shouldn't typically be a problem with someone who has a normal functioning immune system or, or blood production, um, for me, because the leukemia was already running through my body, what it did was just tanked my platelets very, very quickly. And within 24 hours of taking the first dose of that medication, I started bruising. Huh. Uh, So I did place a call, a follow-up call to my doctor and I explained what was going on and, and they told me that it was probably not related to the medication. And if I had any other questions, call the pharmacy Mm. and, uh, and I, you know, I thought that was odd, but it was a new relationship with a new doctor because my family and I had just moved to a new town. So I figured, you know, maybe that's just the way they do things here or, or, you know, whatever the thing is is that you you don't catastrophize when you're too busy to do so you know what I mean you just kind of um far too often just do what you're told (laughs) right so that's what I did I just kind of went on with life and uh within about 48 hours of the first bruises popping up my blood vessels started bursting and I started hemorrhaging wow yeah it was really intense and you know what uh you know, what's crazy is that I, I woke up the morning that I landed in the hospital. I, I woke up that morning and I actually debated going to work that day. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I have a good enough reason not to, what, what am I going to tell people? I'm being told that I have a locked muscle and nobody seems to be concerned about this. So I, you know, what am I supposed to say to my employer when I don't go to work? And uh, so I called uh, what was then called telehealth and, uh, and they basically told me to drop what I was doing and get to the hospital immediately. And, uh, and, you know, I said, well, I'm just gonna get my daughter ready for school and I'll drop her off at school and make my my way over to the hospital. And they said, don't do that, don't drive. They said, we will call you an ambulance if you need one. And even at that point, I felt like it was, um, I think it, I felt like it was kind of overkill a little bit, right? Again, I felt like I was over-exaggerating and I didn't feel like there was anything, you know, even though I felt awful and that's the crazy thing. I felt absolutely awful, but I didn't have any anything you know, to really go on, I didn't have any medical professionals telling me there was anything actually wrong with me. So I just kept going. Mm -hmm. And I did, I dropped my daughter off at school that morning, and I drove myself to the hospital. And, uh, and even when I sat down with the triage nurse to be seen by a doctor that morning, um, I had to advocate pretty hard for myself uh, with triage nurse. You know, the thing is, is that if you had looked at me, you probably wouldn't have thought that I was sick. You might've thought that I looked tired. Mm -hmm. I was, but it was the, it was winter time, you know, and I was, uh, you know, in a jacket and heavy sweater and and all that. So you wouldn't have seen the bruises or the blood vessels or any, anything like that. Um, and I wonder how much that has to do with just being dismissed. Right. Mm -hmm. So. When I sat down with the triage nurse and she asked me what was happening, I said, well, you know, I locked a muscle in my hip and I've been taking this medication for for a while and I have bruises and my blood vessels are bursting. And and her response was, well, the doctor is just going to tell you to stop taking the medication. And I said, well, I've done that. I stopped taking it a couple of days ago, but bruises are still popping up and, and now I'm hemorrhaging. And she said, well, so you're here for heavy menstruation then? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm here because my body looks like crime scene investigation. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why. I said, you know, I was on the phone with telehealth this morning and they basically told me to drop what I was doing and come here. So here I am. And she said, we call telehealth one 800 go to emerge around here Wow. Which was triggering as I'm sure you can imagine. And I said, I don't care what you call telehealth. I need to see a doctor now.
2: Right.
1: And she very flippantly responded with, well, we're not very busy here this morning. So I guess we'll take a couple of vials of blood to see what's going on. And I just, I couldn't believe it because it's not even, you know, it's not even her position to assess if that's what's required in that kind of situation. So it was just really shocking to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it was a couple of hours later and some blood work later that the doctor came in and was like, "Um, yeah, we need to send you to a cancer center immediately to begin treatment. And, uh, and that nurse ended up coming back into the room after the news was given. and, And she said, so I guess it's a good thing you insisted on seeing a doctor. Huh. That's it. And I was like, yeah, you know, you're like, thanks. <laughs> I don't know, thanks, I guess. It's uh, it was a real struggle to to get through it. And um, and I'll be honest with you that there were definitely points in those days leading up to the diagnosis, and and I should be really clear that with this particular type of leukemia um it's called acute promyelocytic leukemia and the um the period of time from onset to mortality could be as short as 7 to 28 days so we were really in a race against the clock and um and even in those few short days it was so exhausting to try to get through that, that at times I was like, you know, can I just go home and watch the news? I'm tired, you know? And, uh, and it's just, it's, it's disturbing to think of what, what could have happened if I had done that.
0: I can't even imagine what it, what it would be like to go there in your thoughts, you know, because if you d- didn't advocate for yourself it would could be a very different situation right exactly. or it, w- it would have been so
1: and undoubtedly yeah. yeah
0: yeah um what i i can't also can't imagine just how it felt and all of that to hear that news and you're there and you're processing all this this information um but in the book you talk about it and you know just like your first like the first couple of days there and mm-hmm. can you just share with me maybe if you don't mind like what was kind of going through your head in having this realization of like you said I want to be an author I want to be a speaker like
2: mm-hmm.
0: what what started to like just kind of unravel there for you in your mind of realizing the path that you had been living which wasn't which was a wonderful great life right and and was good but how you kind of you know unraveled the thoughts to to make this change for yourself
1: yeah you know I I think what it was is just the realization of how um how hard I had to push to just be taken seriously right and how really and truly I just wanted things to be fine and I wanted to go back and and go to work and do all of the things that were expected of me, or at least that I thought was expected of me, right? right. And uh, and I would have just been happy to fall back into those, all of those roles. And I think in, in that period of time uh, of like just utter chaos in the hospital, it was sort of like a veil lifted from my eyes. And I was like, why am I doing all of these things? Why, why would I nearly kill myself? like very literally nearly kill myself for the roles that I'm playing in my life instead of prioritizing my needs in these situations. It made me feel really angry at the societal expectations that are placed on women. And in that situation, obviously myself um, to be all the things to everyone and to back burner myself, right? Um, and, and that was really what it was for me was just, I had spent so many years of my life trying to be all of the things and it landed me in a hospital bed with a condition that very nearly killed me. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't want to do that anymore. And I just didn't want that for other people.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Wow. Um, yeah, I I I was reading when I was reading those parts and, and reading, you know, kind of how your thoughts were and your family showing up for Christmas and all of that, like, I just couldn't help but think about all oh, like what was going through your head, like, how was that veil lifting because I can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that everybody has their own moment in a self-love journey and it's all very different and, you know, but I, I, I know what you mean by when that veil starts to lift and you're like, hold on. I was yeah. checking all these, I was trying to check all these boxes, but they're not even the boxes I want.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. There was, there was a moment. So on the first day that we were in the hospital, um, uh, my, my then boyfriend now husband and I were in room and it was finally quiet for the first time of the day and it was fairly late in the evening and we were laying together in my hospital bed and and I said to him you know I just realized that if I die here I can't take a car with me (laughs) right I can't take the ensuite jet tub that I have been wanting so bad with me. I can't take, you know, I can't take material things to the grave with me, right? And um, and that for me, I think was a real defining moment in terms of how my priorities began to shift.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that really speaks to the societal expectation also, right? Just always, we are always driving for more. And even at that time, um, we had just purchased our first home together a year earlier. And I can remember, you know, we weren't even fully moved into our house yet. And we were having conversations about upgrading that house to a double car garage and to, you know, all of the things that we wanted in our next property. So we were not even allowing ourselves to revel in the Um, in the achievement of being homeowners and and that was really it for me was just that these things are at the end of the day these are not the things that we're going to take with us when we leave Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I wanted to spend more of my time doing was you know um making a meaningful impact on humanity in any way that I can. And more importantly, making more happy memories with my family. Mm-hmm. That's what we take with us. That is the only thing we're taking with us. And so that's where I wanted to spend more of my time and more of my effort.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's the things you take with you, but it's also the things you leave, right? That are of of importance,
2: you that's know exactly. in,
0: my my aunt um all my aunt passed away a few years ago um of cancer, and I remember my uncle telling me that is it's things do not matter and and i I got it, but like i didn't i I got it, but like, I didn't get it get it. you know, yeah. it took me some time to truly understand it and live into that and um and, and really understand that and make changes in my own life. And like, Mm -hmm. do I need that? Like, for instance, I was having this conversation with someone the other day, like, I love my vehicle, right. But it's like a massive payment every month. You know, and I thought to myself, like, why do we do this to ourselves? Like, why do we do that? Like, and, and we were both going back and forth and both feeling, but it's, that's that, that unraveling as you go to realize like, what could you be doing with that money every month? Like, sure. you know, yeah. and not to say that you can't have nice things. That's not what I'm saying. Cause I think that that's wonderful, but it's like, if, if you have to pick and choose for me, it's like getting to that point where I'm like, if I had to pick and choose, like the, it, it's starting to make different decisions. And,
1: oh, sure. and, you know, the other thing too, about that is that I think it has to do with how we've been conditioned to strive for happiness, right? Mm-hmm we've been told that things are happiness and the reality is that yeah you can you can go get you know you can go get a a new shiny car and that's gonna feel good for a minute but the novelty wears off and what do you do when the novelty wears off right
2: absolutely
1: Um, what would you say were the first things that
0: you implemented, um, once you started to feel better No, Oh, I want to come back. Sorry. I'm going to like, I'm thinking yeah. of a and it's coming out is I remember in your book, you talked about like when you were recovering at home, now you were back to recovering at home and like you would get overwhelmed. Cause like the laundry, you know, wasn't done a certain way and how you kind of were starting to shift. Um, because you can decide that you want to be different, but it takes growing right to, yeah. Stop letting those things that you've been so conditioned to believe matter and start to change. So can you, can you walk us through that process a little bit of, for of sure. getting home and, and, you know, recovering and moving into this space?
1: Yeah, for sure. You know, it was, uh, like I said, I was kind of the doer of all things before mm-hmm. getting sick. Right. And, and, um, being home, I mean, so I was in the hospital for 22 days and, um, and when I came home, there were periods of time where I was not in active treatment. Uh, The treatment plan was, was pretty heavy duty. So I was in the hospital every day for 30 days consecutive of treatment. And then I would be off for a three week period to recover. And during those three week breaks, I was kind of, you know, my mom went home to water her plants and do the things on, on her own. And my husband went back to work. And I was kind of just on my own in that time. And, you know, the dishes on the counter would be staring at me or, you know, the laundry would be piling up downstairs. And, and I just had this overwhelming compulsion to do the things. Right. And, and in reality, I shouldn't have been doing them all at all. In hindsight, I shouldn't have been doing them because they were probably hindering my recovery. Right. Um, and yeah, I was doing the laundry this one day and I was just my, I was knelt down in front of the dryer and my knees were just on fire because my joints were swollen and really sore from the treatment. And I was in pain and I'm folding like five-year-old socks together. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this to myself? And you know, the funny thing is, is that my inclination was to blame my husband. Hmm so he would come home from work and i would be like oh, i did the things today <laughs> you know what i mean it really hurt but i did them anyway expecting expecting something in return and his response was well why did you do that <laughs> like why would you do that to your to yourself and initially i was kind of angry for at him for that response right but i had to sit and really think about it why mm-hmm. why would i really do that to myself and and i think that was the first Um, I think that was the first step for me was in recognizing what I didn't recognize.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: There was no expectation for me to do those things. He had no expectations of me and my kids certainly had no expectations of me. So, so why was I really doing it? And, and that was, that was incredibly important for me in my journey was recognizing what I don't recognize. Mm -hmm. and um but in that that journey of doing and and wondering why you know I had um I had started seeing a therapist as I'm sure you can imagine there was quite a lot to to unpack with that experience and I was sitting with her one day and I was like you know I can't make a meal for my kids and I can't take a laundry basket upstairs and I can't do all of these i can't play with my kids on the floor right and it was just so super frustrating and and very disheartening and she asked me one of the most important questions anybody has ever asked me she said who are you without your roles Mm -hmm. and i couldn't answer that question i could i couldn't even understand the question yeah I didn't even understand the question because I had no awareness that we are people without our roles mm-hmm. because I had just been so deeply entrenched in mine. And that was really where that's really where the work started for me was in spending time trying new things to figure out what I like what what do I like doing in my spare time right that was really what it boiled down to for me I learned that I loved gardening right Mm -hmm. I mean I had never really spent any time gardening and I was home during the summer I was by myself pretty much all of the summer so I thought you know what let's just give that a shot and that was for me what became um, the habit of figuring out who I am and what I like and what what is truly valuable about me. And quite frankly, you know, um how well I fold five-year-old socks doesn't define my worth as a person. <laughs> right. It's so true.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: And the other thing that I think is so important. Um and I'm so glad you touched on it because I was going to bring it there anyway. If you didn't was uh because when, when I work with women or even sometimes men to um and coaching them is that awareness of and i'm human so i've also done this but getting mad at someone else mm-hmm. for a la- for a lack of boundary you don't have mm-hmm. yeah you know? right. and it's um someone else's fault yes without that conscious awareness of what that's trying to show you, you know, it's easier to put blame and to be angry at someone else instead of looking at yourself in the mirror and saying, why did you have that expectation on yourself? No one else did. Why are you, you know, sitting there and and I'm sure with your therapist, and we don't have to completely unpack it today, but I'm sure, you know, it went back you know, for you to something from childhood or something that someone told you, or, you know, like you had said earlier, you were doing things to impress other people. You know, that was that, that is that unraveling of seeing that. Wow. Holy shit. Like That's how true. I pulled five-year-old socks is like really ties back to that, you know, trying to like, you want your husband to know, like I did all those things, you know, mm-hmm. I I did them all. Because he should have had that level of expectation on himself to meet yours. like it's so yeah. um, yeah, it's it's wild it's to complex, yeah. it is,
1: right? like it's very complex. and you're right. I mean, um, I mean, for me, i I really had to I really had to start thinking about why I was doing all of the things that I was doing and and where where did it really start for me? and I think I think what is what became one of the the thought patterns that was most disturbing to me to realize was all of the times that I was doing things I didn't really wanted to I didn't really want to be doing or I didn't really feel good about but I kind of brushed those feelings aside and just did things anyway right um And that was that for me also was sort of the beginning of boundaries, like what feels good and what doesn't feel good and getting really comfortable with the idea that what feels good and right to me isn't always going to make other people happy and having to shift what my barometer of worth was from how happy are people with the things that I am doing to how happy am I with the things that I'm doing? You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. That was an incredible shift going from, uh, seeking external validation and doing things that made me uncomfortable and unhappy to achieve that validation to deciding that, How happy other people are in my decisions is really not, it cannot be my focus because at the end of the day, I am the one who is dealing with the repercussions of, of those feelings. And I just didn't want that anymore.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You had recommended this book to me, um, which I, I still have to get to continue reading. I keep popping around on books, but when the body says no, Mm -hmm yeah which i think is um such a powerful i even just what i've been slowly reading is is just so powerful in that in that in understanding you know and and realizing how it shows up in your body and connecting with those emotions because i think for so much of i'm not saying that men don't have this because i think men have a different um you know struggle with identifying their own needs and feelings but for women you know it's been kind of more ingrained to be that people pleaser and you know to do on others because that means kindness and you know we just give it, it, it's be the good girl you know it, it's
1: well, yeah it's- we're all we're not allowed we're also we have historically have not been allowed to express our emotions right mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 Or they're 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 out of control or they're crazy. Yeah, that's you, exactly you know? right. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember um one of my big, big realizations, I would love to hear your take on this too, when I first started this journey for myself was realizing that like I would have always thought of myself as someone who could identify my emotions. But when I realized it, I only could identify three, like happy, angry, or sad. And yeah living and playing into those different emotions, um, of like learning what contentment felt like or learning what inner peace was and, um, agitation and, you know, what is that agitation teaching me? Like, what does things, what do things and emotions feel like in my body instead of just lumping them into these three emotions and then suppressing them or not suppressing them and flipping out, (laughs) you know, it's like, yeah. Do you feel like when you started your journey you 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 struggled with that as well?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think one of one of the biggest struggles for me where when it came to acknowledging and expressing emotion was what if you're feeling more than one at the same time? Right. (laughs) Like what happens if you are a little bit happy and a little bit sad too? Or what happens if you're a little bit happy and you're a little bit angry, right? How do you Um, how do you reconcile those things? Not only with yourself, but outwardly as well. Right. For me, that was a real struggle because I felt like if I was experiencing more than one emotion at a time that I couldn't trust myself. Mm. So there was always like this feeling of there was there, I shouldn't say always, but there were times where I was feeling this, um, inner struggle with myself and, you know, questioning what's wrong with me to be dealing with multiple, you know, emotions. And, and that for me, I think was, was one of the challenging things. So there's two parts there is, is one, um, how do you like, is the acceptance of your emotions as well as the acceptance of potentially more than one emotion. And, um, and it's also to the allowing yourself to, accept that you're feeling that way it won't feel like that forever and how do you get rid of it mm-hmm. right how do you just allow yourself to roll with that and move forward right and that is the part that feeds into the how does your body respond to it if you never allow yourself to feel the things whether they make sense whether they don't whether they're logical whether they're not whether they're justified whether they're not that is irrelevant it's completely irrelevant, right? It It is, we feel these things every day mm-hmm. and I think we need to do a better job of honoring ourselves when we're feeling things and without sitting and trying to logic it all away, it just is what it is and that's okay, right? And when we don't do that, when we don't let those emotions flow through us, they definitely do get trapped in, in our bodies. And I did think that I knew my body well. And when I look back at, you know, the relationship that I did have with my body and with my emotions prior to getting sick, it's really shocking to me at how much I didn't know. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think it's very likely that the vast majority of my adult life, I was in a state of like serious dehydration. The majority of my adult life. Right. Right. And I never would have recognized that until I learned what hydration actually feels like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And I think back to how often I used to get headaches, right. Or how, how often I had body tension prior to, to becoming ill and how I feel now. And it's just a completely, um, it's a, it's, it is a complete contrast because I do work on how I feel and I do allow myself to, you know, honor my feelings and I do let them flow. Um, and so I think I have a much better relationship with my body now than I ever did.
0: Do you have any tools that you use to um, process them or, uh, say, come aware of them if you, if you need to like figure it out?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um I think I think as a mom, it's really important that when you have people who require your attention all of the time that you set some boundaries with them too, right? And and to verbalize as well. So if I'm having, you know, if I'm having a hard day and I just need some time to myself, it is okay for me to say to my kids, Hey, I need you to entertain yourself for the next 30 minutes. I'm just having a moment and I just need to be on my own.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know what I mean? And um, we've gotten to the point now where they recognize that, that I shouldn't even say they recognize. I think that's just like a normal part of life for them. Now we have our moments. They are okay. We can, take the time on our own to do the things that we need to do to process and work through that. And then we move on with our days and that's okay. And for me, that does look like quiet time alone. It could be reading. Walking is super important to me. Um, and, and writing is super important to me. Yeah. I find writing is a really great process for me to work through my thought processes and get them straight.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: I I find writing uh, for me has probably been one of my biggest self-awareness tools Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: like self realizations, like where I like have my own aha moments. Cause I'll be like, I'm pretty sure you were feeling this way like four weeks ago. And then I'll go back and look and I'll be like, Oh, it's that time of the month, you know, like yeah. so even just something like that to be like, "Oh, you always hate this or you always, you know, get super flustered with I don't know, like garbage or what other people are doing around this time or, you know, that feeling keeps coming up what are you ignoring or, you know, you yeah, like I think that journaling and people always say like, "Who journal?" I'm like, "It's not like dear diary." You know, like yeah. I like this boy. It's like Getting out on paper, you know, what yeah. it is out of your head, like get the hamsters off the wheel so you can see yeah. it in writing.
1: For sure. I totally agree. It's, uh, it has been a really important process for me in, you know, what it is for me is, is, um, it is the opportunity for me to question myself mm-hmm. in a very personal and very private way. Right. If I'm having a day to, to your point, if I'm having a day and I don't know why, then that's a, that's a question for me and I can sit and I can write all of the things down and they might not make sense when they come out of my head and they go on paper. But if you just kind of flip them around a little bit and give them another read, sometimes it just helps to connect those dots. Right. And I think something else that's really important on that point too, is that, you know, prior to being sick, I I was always living in a state of chaos right? I was always, I had an incredible amount of anxiety and I was always super stressed. And the reality is, is, that when you live in that state, you can't, you can't really, you don't have the ability to think logically about what is happening or what the outcome is going to be, right? When you're amped up like that, you are just always in a state of, survival and just trying to get things done but when you come out of that and you're able to really reflect on your previous experiences like you mentioned you can look back and go oh hey like yeah I did kind of feel like this four weeks ago and guess what I I lived to tell the tale and I'm gonna live to tell the tale today too yeah. right I think that's one of the most important shifts for me um, over the last Five or six years is just recognizing that, um, you know, we there are always going to be struggles in life. There are always going to be challenges. There is always going to be change. That is the nature of life. Yes, most of us don't like it, and that's fine. But if we're able to reflect on our previous experiences, then we are always going to be able to um, remind ourselves that we got through it and we're going to get through this too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Um, I love that you brought up your girls. Cause I do have that question in, you know, your lessons of self-love now and, you know, having to face what you did to have that kind of awakening to it. Right. I love that you said you set boundaries and, and you explained to the girls, but is there other things that you do or ways that you, um, let go first of all I guess it's a two-part question what are some things that you're teaching them about self-love one and second part is um what do you how do you handle mommy guilt with setting boundaries around self-love so two-part question
1: (laughs) okay so we'll start with the first part what am I teaching them what are we teaching them about self-love well um I'll tell you a story so we, I guess, I was out of treatment for uh, maybe two or three months. Mm-hmm. So it had been, I would say, seven or eight months since my diagnosis. And um, my daughters were playing upstairs in. Uh, so th- my daughters are Victoria and Isabel, and Victoria and Isabel were playing in Victoria's room. Uh, and again, keeping in mind, they were they. I think they had just turned six at this point. And um, Victoria didn't want Isabel in her room anymore, and she punched her in the stomach. It was the first time we've ever had, you know, kind of like an outburst like that. They're great kids. They're totally nonviolent kids. And it was completely out of character for Victoria to do something like that. So I will admit probably didn't handle it the best way possible. I was pretty upset. She was grounded. It was was a thing, but when everybody kind of calmed down and, um, and I had the chance to reflect on, you know, why, why now, why now would that be the way that she handles something? Right. I sat down and had a conversation with her and and just asked her, you know, um, how have you been feeling since I got sick? Mm -hmm. and she broke down and bawled in the most guttural way it was devastating to watch her experience that but what I recognized is that that was all emotion that had existed in her for those seven or eight months Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and that was her starting to get that emotion out in a particularly unhealthy way mm-hmm. and so that was realization for my husband and i that we needed to start having some different conversations with our kids so i mean rather than the you know day-to-day hustle and bustle did you brush your teeth did you you know did you make your bed did you like those kinds of things we started to recognize that we needed to sit down and have conversations about how they were feeling and what they were thinking, and helping them work through um, the emotional response that they were having to the changing dynamics in the house also. Right. So that was a real shift for us from a parenting perspective. It went, we went from being more, you know, directive with the kids to being more conversational with the kids and really making the intention of, asking them how they're feeling and asking them and demonstrating ways that they can deal with those emotions also right what are the ways that what are the things that work for you and make you feel better when you're dealing with these crazy emotions inside of you and uh, and that looked different for both of them for sure but we have definitely worked on you know things like breathing techniques and counting techniques. So one of my daughter's counting techniques work really well for her when she's feeling very upset. She actually has, she does this, she'll put her hand up and she does this. And for some reason that motion for her helps to calm her. Okay. Yeah. So she, she, and I think she does breathing through it. Right. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we definitely spend a lot more time talking to them about how they feel and, um, and it's okay to feel the things that they do. And more importantly, or maybe as important that it's okay to let them go when they're ready to let them go. Also, it is okay to feel this right now. And when you are ready to let it go, it's okay to move on. Right. I don't know why, they they had or children seem to have this and maybe it's an adult thing actually we get this impression that because we feel something we must stay in that feeling Mm -hmm. I don't know what some kind of validation or what but we had recognized that that had started happening with our kids so that conversation of being able to let them go is also really important we, um, we used with them the example that emotions are like the ocean.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Yeah, they are They're waves and they come in and they go out and it is okay for them to come and it's okay for them to go too. so. Yeah. So we do that with them. And, and we also um, spend time with them in terms of physical activity to to help them process and get rid of emotions. So running and playing and, you know, rollerblades or whatever it is that just makes them feel good and is going to help them expel energy. We, uh, we focus on that with them also.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah.
1: That's
0: good. And then when you're taking your own self mm-hmm. uh, or your own self love time or your own time for yourself, um, whether it be gardening or things that you've lo- you love to do now that you've, yeah. um, been exploring that, um do you feel mommy guilt when you do that
1: um I mean yeah I don't think mommy guilt goes away entirely but I would say that I feel less of it than I did uh yeah and and it was tough to deal with at first because again it's that shift right it's the shift from um giving to taking the time that you need right um And there was definitely that shift for me. Uh, How did I deal with it? You know, the thing is, is that um, once I started noticing the benefit of taking the time for me, you know what? Let me back up. Let me back this up. For me, what was really important was setting my kids up to never be in the position that I had been in before. Mm-hmm. right? For me, it was I don't want my daughters to grow up feeling like they have to exhaust themselves and back burner their own needs, to make other people happy, that they are whole humans, they are worthy of taking up space. They have all of the opportunities that they choose to throw their energy into no holds bar, right? And I actually really felt like it was important for them to observe me doing the same thing. So yeah, there's always a level of mommy guilt, but I wouldn't say that I had a ton of it to begin with because I felt like by me taking the time to take care of myself and to pursue things that were important for me, was demonstrating to them that they could do the same thing too. Right. I, yeah.
0: I absolutely love that. Cause I think it's so important. And when I'm coaching people and I don't have children, I mean, I've been a bonus mom before yeah. in past relationships, but um not having my own children. People assume that like, um, well, you just don't understand what it feels like. And yeah. it's like, I, I know I get what they're saying, but at the end of the day, your children learn by watching more so than what you tell them. So if you're not exhibiting or practicing self-love or self-care or boundaries within yourself, Mm -hmm. and also if you're running on empty and trying to parent out of guilt, you might not be in full alignment like your actions might not be or the way you're responding might not be no
1: know. they know yeah. right yeah. they're they are they're smart little people and they recognize these things when they're happening for yeah. sure yeah
0: yeah And also too, I think that you're, when you're not taking care of yourself, your nervous system is not okay. It's running on, like I say to people, like your nervous system is hanging by a thread, you know? And for many of us, that's how we've been conditioned to live. It's like, go, go, go drink coffee. You're tired, drink coffee, don't nap or don't rest. It's drink coffee, take medication, like take herbal supplements, for stress, and just keep going, you know? And that's what success is. But when people try to parent from that place or even try to work or, or represent or lead, whether you're leading a family, a team yourself, mm-hmm. running from that space is not serving anyone. Cause it's
1: oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, um, I think one of the things that's also really important, important with parenting and and, you know, giving them a really strong foundation for self-love because let's be honest, the world, the world has a way of, um it can have a way of making you doubt yourself and and making you push your own boundaries and and that kind of thing or accepting behavior that is just not acceptable and and all, and these are the things that we you know lay down at night and we're thinking about before we fall asleep or maybe prevents us from falling asleep because we are doubting how we handled something or we we don't feel good about you know something that we allowed or whatever the case may be right and so it's also really important that we have conversations with them around what is, it, what is it okay, what is okay for you to do and what is okay for you to say and what are your boundaries as well, right? We're at a point in, in our home where we have taught our children that if something doesn't feel right to you, if you're not okay with something, you are allowed to come to me and tell me. You are perfectly allowed to come to me and tell me we had a a situation in our house last spring where my daughter and I were doing something and, um, and, and she didn't like, uh, something that I had said to her and, you know, the day went on and evening kind of rolled around and everybody was getting ready for bed. And she came into, uh, my bedroom and she's like, mommy, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, do we need, like, do we need to sit down for this talk? <laughs> you know? and she's like, yes, let's sit on the bed. So we went and sat on the bed and she was probably, I want to say um, she would have been nine at the time. And I said, okay, what's going on? And she said, I want you to know that I don't like the way that you spoke to me earlier today. And she was clear, clearly very uncomfortable <laughs> pushing those words out but she did it. And, you know, I, I said to her, uh, you know, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Can you help me understand wh- why you feel that way? And, you know, so we talked through it and, you know, I asked her clarifying questions to understand exactly why she felt the way she did. Uh, I took the time to explain to her why I said what I said and, we ultimately came to a conclusion on how it is that we would handle a similar situation in future in a way that would make both her and I comfortable. I love that. It is so important to teach these kids that they can speak up. Mm -hmm. They have a voice. They can use it. It doesn't matter if people like it or not. That's not what's important. What is important is that when you lay your head down at night to go to sleep, that you are okay with what you have done and said that day. Mm -hmm. And I, for one, want my kids to know that they are, I, I want my kids to go to bed at night feeling good about their choices rather than feeling poorly about not taking action or about allowing inappropriate behaviors, or or whatever the case may be, right? It's super, super important to us that our kids are comfortable using their voices. And we definitely practice that with them on a regular basis.
0: That is wonderful. I think it's yeah, and then not or having them go to bed and suppressing it. And, you know, oh. thinking that they can't use it, and then it manifests in, in another way, you know, it's uh, someone asked me, uh, how can I avoid, like, having my children to heal from things that I put them through. And I'm like, good luck with that. First of all, but I think every parent and every generation, we're going to continue to grow and learn. But one of the things that I did say was allowing your children to know it's okay to have uncomfortable conversations as adults we are still learning that. I mean, I I can speak for myself as even for myself, it's uncomfortable sometimes to have conversations, but they're so healing and that's where the breakthroughs happen and that's where the change happens and, you know, being able to use your voice, but also teaching your children that tool, even as you learn it is, is incredible and I also want to say, cause we've been saying mommy guilt as well, but I also want to recognize that I definitely feel that dads have that as well. So I don't want to make it, you know, gender specific yeah, I think parenting, parenting does come with a lot of guilt and a lot of, you know, expectations. Um, but I love how you and your husband both work through that with your children and, you know, it, it, you're growing together through this experience and it sounds incredible for your family.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, we've said the same thing to to them too, right? We've sat and had conversations with them where we've said, listen, you know, we, people have this, uh, um, kids, kids have this assumption that their parents know everything and that they have all the answers and, and all that. Right. But we've definitely sat down and had conversations with them to say, Hey, listen, we just need you to know that, We only know as much as we know, and we are growing and everyone should be growing all of the time. So sometimes we're going to get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're not going to be very happy with us and that's okay. Let us know. And we have the opportunity to grow and and work on things together. I just think it's really important that they know that um, personal development doesn't stop at. 14 years old or 18 years old or 25 years old this is a lifelong commitment and and um I think the more entrenched that is in their thought process at at 10 the more beneficial it's going to be to them when they get to the point in their life where they realize we screwed them up in whatever way we screwed we screwed (laughs) them up in (laughs) and and that they need to work through that and that's okay it's a normal part of growing
0: I totally agree with that. Um, Michelle, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, with me and sharing this time with me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I also want to say thank you for shining your light um, for other patients and, you know, helping them find their voice. Where can people find you on social media if they want to follow you like I do and enjoy all your beautiful content?
1: For sure. So I can be found on Instagram, um, Facebook, as well as TikTok, Twitter, like kind of all the places, I think, I think they're all the places. Uh, And you can find me at um, she underscore persevered on uh, Instagram.
0: Perfect. I will also put that in the show notes, um, but we
1: will wrap it up because I could talk
0: to you all day, but uh, for viewers purposes, I know that we, we <laughs> value and also value your time. So thank you for that. And I hope to have you on again and continue to grow and look forward to hearing your audio book that's coming out soon.
1: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to see you.
0: Okay. Thank you, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm over here giving you a virtual high five. We just finished another podcast together. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear your takeaways, what were your favorite parts, or continue this conversation. Head over to my Instagram. It will be listed in the show notes. Let's continue to grow together. With love, Shandel.